Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 21st of January with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Michael Zrust, founder of Listari Capital, about the Rimba Collective, an initiative led by buyers and processors of palm oil to collectively support long-term sustainable conversion and restoration of forests. Highlights of our conversation are coming up a bit later. And earlier this week, I caught up with Global Canopy's Emma Thompson. We talked about the headlines and conclusions from the latest Forest 500 report. First, though, is some sustainable business news. New research from insurance sector giant Munich Re says that financial losses from natural disasters reached $280 billion in 2021. Financial losses have increased for the past three years, and the 2021 figure was up a third in the corresponding number from 2020, indicating the ever-growing impacts of climate change. Hurricane Ida, that hit the east coast of the US and a number of island nations in the Caribbean, was the costliest disaster, with damage worth $65 billion alone. Summer flooding across Europe caused a $54 billion hit. In 2021, the proportion of insured losses rose to 43%, compared to 34% in 2019. Munich Re attributes this to more disasters in developed nations where significantly more properties tend to be insured. Tragically, 9,200 lives were lost to natural disasters in 2021. In his annual open letter to CEOs, Larry Fink, head of the world's largest asset manager BlackRock, repeated calls he's made in the past for companies to practice stakeholder capitalism, seeking to serve the interests of all connected to them. He also defended taking a position on company values, saying that it was not woke. Developing good relationships with employees, customers, suppliers and communities was simply good capitalism, he said. Speaking to CNBC, Fink revealed his frustration about the process of energy transition to low carbon, calling for a combination of government and the private sector that, he said, was not so far happening. Fink has also hit back at critics of BlackRock's continuing to engage with fossil fuel companies as they transition to a low carbon future rather than simply divesting from the fossil fuel sector. He characterised this approach as not one that would get the world to net zero. Luxury UK-based fashion brand Burberry is the latest to link borrowing to performance against sustainability metrics. It has worked with Lloyds Bank to refinance a £300 million revolving credit facility to cover a separate loan, linked to the company's declared sustainability initiatives, including its science-based target guided goal of being climate positive by 2040 and a 46% scope 3 emissions reduction target by 2030. Martin Spencer and the John Lewis Partnership are among other retailers who have linked credit and other borrowing facilities with sustainability performance. A significant impact for the apparel sector and many others is, of course, from transporting commodities and finished goods from mills to factories and to markets. Global shipping business Maersk has announced a tightening of its climate targets with a goal of reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions across its entire business by 2040, a decade earlier than its previous ambition. Various targets set by the business are aimed at aligning Maersk with a 1.5 Celsius pathway via the science-based targets initiative's net zero criteria. For its sea-based cargo, 25% will be transported using green fuels by the end of this decade. In the air, 30% at least will be flown using sustainable aviation fuels. Other land-based assets in the company's direct operations will be electrified and decarbonised, and Maersk is working to assess how to establish best efficiencies from its own suppliers. When announcing the measures, the company said it recognises that as more than half Maersk's top 200 customers have ambitious supply chain climate targets, they are reliant on the company to help them reach these targets. A few days ago, I spoke with Global Canopy's Emma Thompson about the newly released Forest 500 report. I was excited to find out what evidence the Global Canopy team had found that all the talk at COP26 and elsewhere had been reflected in action by the companies with the biggest deforestation risks. 
Well, we're going to talk a bit about the new Forest 500 report. So Emma, what is the Forest 500 report? Just give remind us what it's all about. Forest 500 is an annual assessment and ranking of the 350 companies and the 150 financial institutions with the greatest influence on deforestation. So every year we assess them on the strength and implementation of their commitments and policies on deforestation and associated human rights. And those assessments are done using publicly available information. We then publish all of that data every year. So we've just launched our latest data set and our latest report. So what are the big findings this time? So unfortunately, we've not seen a huge amount of progress since our latest assessment. We have been assessing the Forest 500 companies and financial institutions for eight years. Progress has really started to slow. This year, a third of the companies with the greatest exposure to tropical deforestation still didn't have a single deforestation commitment for any of the commodities that they're exposed to. And only a quarter of the companies assessed had a commitment for all of the commodities that they're assessed for. Not only are the companies doing poorly, but 93 of the 150 financial institutions assessed didn't have a deforestation policy either. And that equates to $2.6 trillion of financing going into just those 350 companies that we assess that isn't covered by deforestation policy. But then if we look at the implementation of those policies, we see that even among those companies and financial institutions with a policy, the implementation is really poor across the board. This year, Forest 500 shifted our scoring slightly so that reporting and implementation became a higher proportion of the scores of companies and financial institutions. But mostly the Forest 500 companies and financial institutions didn't keep up with that shift. Almost a third of the companies that have at least one deforestation commitment don't monitor their suppliers or their own operations to check for compliance with that commitment. And only 23 of the financial institutions with a policy were actually reporting on their progress towards that implementation. So we are seeing not a lot of progress this year and there's a real room for improvement next year. Of those commi- the, those companies that you said, one third with commitments of no monitoring, do they give publicly any indication as to why? No, unfortunately they don't really. Um, we only rely on their publicly available information. So if they're reporting that they are monitoring that compliance and the system that they're using to do that, then we score them. But if they don't, then we don't record any other information. Any positive signs from this year? There are some companies and financial institutions that have made progress this year. They've set new commitments and some are, are going by implementing them more effectively. But as a whole, the Forest 500 companies, it is a relatively disappointing picture. One of the big outcomes from COP26 last year was a real sense of movement on deforestation. I was going to ask you if this year's Forest 500 report bears this out. I I guess not. Not really. Most of our assessments were conducted before COP and we have seen little progress compared to last year's assessment. And this is a trend we've seen repeatedly over the last eight years, that while some leaders do make new commitments and make progress, many of the laggards don't move forward at all. In our latest assessment, there's still a really high number of companies that score absolutely zero. Let's just think about some of the specific risks or areas of risk then. Have there been any changes in where the big deforestation risks are? Not really a change. This year we found that company and financial institution action on beef, soy and leather was still lagging significantly behind, especially behind palm oil. And that comes despite soy and cattle being the biggest drivers of tropical deforestation. And as many of us know, deforestation in Brazil is at a 15-year high, which is where soy and cattle are really big drivers of that deforestation. We are seeing that companies and financial institutions are still taking too little action on those commodities. And that's not just in setting a policy, but also in implementing them. Is there any commodity that stands out as one where progress has been made? Not really a significant amount of progress. Palm oil is still by far the commodity that has the most action and the best reporting on that implementation. 
There's been a lot of talk about big finance getting the message on deforestation. So what evidence are you seeing of a shift in approach? Our latest assessments suggest that finance is kind of waking up to the issue of deforestation. So this year we found that 31 of the 150 assessed recognised that deforestation posed some kind of risk to their institution. So whether that's financial, operational or reputational. But we have found that few financiers are taking steps to reduce those risks in practice. I mentioned earlier how 93 of the 150 don't have a single deforestation policy. But we also found that only 11 of those 150 had a policy for all four of the highest forest risk commodities, palm oil, soy, cattle products and timber products. So there is a really huge amount of work to be done by the finance sector, especially ensuring that there is equivalent action across all of those commodities. That is the most progress we made definitely in terms of the reporting and implementation of those policies by the finance sector. One area that can definitely improve is by being more transparent, not just about their policies, but in terms of how they are reporting on the implementation of those policies. While we saw that 46% of financial institutions with a policy publicly reported kind of a monitoring and compliance process, only 23 reported the progress towards implementing and only one financial institution reported all necessary criteria for all four of the commodities that they're exposed to. We really see a significant improvement in how financial institutions are reporting on their implementation. Given that governments seem to be moving in regulation and are certainly improving their approach to regulation, which we saw at COP26 and we're seeing elsewhere, do you think there's a risk then for business that it's getting left behind a little bit in aligning with upcoming legal requirements if progress on dealing with deforestation is slowing, as you say? Yes, I think they are a huge risk of being left behind once that legislation comes in. Our findings clearly show that companies are not ready to meet the criteria of upcoming and proposed due diligence, especially that being put in place by the UK legislation. And while the details of that are still to be finalised in that secondary legislation, the direction of travel is clear and the companies that have the greatest influence on deforestation need to be doing more to meet that criteria. And then for companies that are operating in the EU markets, where the due diligence proposals are even more ambitious, where companies are required to know kind of the geolocation of where commodities are sourced from, we need to see a huge improvement in the companies in the Forest 500. They are not yet ready as a group for that due diligence to come in. Although none of the current proposals for due diligence legislation include financial institutions, Global Canopy recognises that applying that due diligence legislation to the finance sector is really important. The finance sector if those assessed is even further behind and the companies are not even more underprepared. I guess the news from this year's report really is that nothing has changed. Are you seeing any evidence that we'll see more change in 2022 and that next year's report will be more positive and seeing some real action? I really hope that it is a more positive picture. The expectations for next year are high. And while the proof really is in the implementation, the commitments that were made at COP26 by governments, by companies and by financial institutions are really promising. We have seen that some companies and financial institutions in the Forest 500 are making progress and are beginning to step up to the plate. We just really need to see that from the rest of the group. And already this year, we have been seeing increased engagement from companies and financial institutions that are included in the Forest 500 that we haven't been able to engage with before. So I think that deforestation was already moving up the agenda, but having it as such a prominent topic at COP and in Glasgow has really brought it to the fore for lots of different stakeholders and really bringing it up up the agenda for companies and financial institutions too. I think that deadline of due diligence legislation is really helping to increase the momentum on deforestation and the need to address deforestation and associated human rights issues. So I think 2021 in many ways developed and laid the foundations for a huge amount of action on deforestation. 
And as long as the momentum that we've got right now is maintained, 2022 has the potential to be transformative for deforestation. But Forest 500 will continue holding the companies and financial institutions with the greatest influence on deforestation to account. As I said, hopefully next year's report will be more positive because we really need it to be. Here's hoping there's a real good post-COP bounce and there's a lot of the progress that is required does indeed come to fruition. But for now, Emma Thomason from Global Canopy, thanks very much for taking us through this year's Forest 500 report. The Innovation Forum Spring event series continues to shape up nicely. The conference series will include forums on business and climate action, responsible sourcing and sustainable apparel and textile supply chains. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. From the 10th to 12th May, we'll be holding our Europe-focused Future of Food event. We'll be discussing how food sector businesses can lead a just transition towards transparent, regenerative and resilient food systems. The panellist lineup is being finalised, but previous events have featured senior representatives of the likes of Unilever, PepsiCo, Mars, Bungie, Nestle and Kellogg. And now is the time to register for conference passes, as the January discount of £150 per ticket applies through to next Friday the 28th. Full details of how to join us are online. Earlier this week, I spoke with Mike Zrust, founder of Lissari Capital. We talked about the Rimba Collective, a really interesting initiative in the palm oil sector that supports long-term sustainable conservation and restoration of forests. It's ambitious, aiming for $1 billion to protect or restore 500,000 hectares of forest, supporting 32,000 individuals in forest communities in Southeast Asia over 25 years, starting in Indonesia. Why don't we start by you giving us a little bit of background to Listari Capital. What's it all about? Listari Capital is an innovative finance enterprise and it's in existence because of the current way that conservation is financed and how the right incentives are created for conservation, how we ensure delivery of impacts on the ground and how the corporate sector interacts with conservation. All of those things, I don't believe, are really fit for purpose in what we're trying to achieve. And this is especially critical if we're looking at the context of delivering on global climate pledges regarding keeping the planet below 1.5 degrees warming, or even on biodiversity conservation, deforestation prevention, local community empowerment, and other sustainable development goals. But it's also important if we look at it in the context of delivering on this huge range of private sector, corporate sustainability commitments that actually align with these goals. What we're seeing is this wave of commitments being made by the private sector you know, which are really critically important, I think, to my mind, if you want to achieve these global commitments, as well as sustainable supply chains, but the mechanisms that actually enable and ensure that these commitments are being achieved at the scale that is needed, with the robust demonstration and verification of impact in place, these are either not there, they're not scalable, or they're not robust enough. So we have this really interesting trio of actors and issues which are moving around each other, but they're not really connecting in the way that we need to in order to kind of deliver the impact that the world actually needs. We've got these global commitments, which as a mankind have to achieve. We have the private sector in place that is piece by piece committing to the outcomes to help achieve those commitments. And we've also got this third actor, I guess, which are the conservation projects on the ground and the activities on the ground which have today, by and large, been supported through grants and philanthropy and other forms of philanthropy. So what Lestari Capital does is to work with these corporate actors and projects 
to essentially conceptualize, develop, implement, and manage the mechanisms, link these pieces together to deliver on those commitments at scale. And the RIMBA Collective, which is our latest and most innovative mechanisms to date, is doing that, but it's also moving supply chain actors beyond just what we have seen today, which is avoidance of negative impact from commodity production and more into sort of positive outcomes that actually help to deliver on these global commitments. So you mentioned the RIMBA Collective, which you're part of. Who's involved in this and what's the ambition? I would say, being slightly biased, of course, is that the RIMBA Collective is a, is a unique coalition of actors. Um, we started in 2020 with four companies, Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo, Nestle and Wilmar to conceptualize a mechanism from scratch, really because there was nothing equivalent out there that would deliver on half a million hectares of conservation, restoration, livelihood impacts on the ground as a start, but over the long term. And when I, when I say long term, I'm thinking 25 years plus. What we did is we identified what is needed to change the paradigm of the issues that I talked about a little bit earlier, the RIMBA Collective has a number of interesting features, and just to pull out a couple of these, it's open to all actors within the supply chain, from producers, processors, traders, manufacturers, retailers, because we, we're really trying to push towards this idea of collective action. And of course, the reality that no single private sector entity will be able to achieve at scale what we actually need to achieve and bring those global commitments into action. And so we then develop a contribution mechanism that is focused on equitable, but that collective action. And so the companies that participate in the RIMBA Collective contribute proportionally to their sourcing, in this case, of palm oil. What we're trying to do is really build towards the principle that conservation shouldn't really be a charitable afterthought. I mean, we're way beyond that in the world today, but that it should be integrated and a long-term part of doing business. And so we're linking the contributions to conservation by these actors to the, their procurement of products and therefore trying to build it into their procurement lines. And so we work effectively on a portfolio basis. So this is a portfolio of a wide range of conservation projects. We're starting in Southeast Asia. So the portfolio is focused around Malaysia, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea. And each of the companies that participates in the member collective contributes to this portfolio of projects. So that's, again, a kind of an interesting change. And there's lots of reasons why this is actually beneficial. The companies are not contributing on a project by project basis, but one company, one project, they're contributing to that portfolio. And what that means is that it allows the company users to access a wide range of conservation outcomes that are being generated by the projects. But on the flip side, it also allows us to build and de-risk the portfolio by including projects which might otherwise not get support because maybe they are more risky, but that also makes them more important in many cases to conservation. But also they might be different typologies. One of the things that we're seeing, of course, today is that there's a lot of focus on carbon and projects that generate carbon credits potentially. And we want to be much more inclusive than that. We want to be looking at a broad range of ecosystem service outcomes, what we refer to as ecosystem service outcomes, including biodiversity, restoration, forest protection, peatland protection, and of course, livelihoods are a fundamental part of all of this. The verification of the outcomes by these projects is conducted independently. It's, it's conducted by international standards. 
And the claims that the users are able to make are only on the outcomes that are actually delivered on the ground, trying to move away from the usual model of contributing, you know, writing nice reports. We actually want there to be tangible outcomes that are generated to make it robust and real. The projects themselves on that side, they receive financing depending on their performance and the achievement of those outcomes. We do not set a price for conservation, which has had a lot of negative and frankly unrealistic aspects to it, if you know how projects actually function. And so then we deliver to them the budgets that they need to achieve the outcomes that they set out. And we build permanence into the projects. So we're again thinking about 25 years. Perhaps we can think about what a typical project looks like that's involved in, in the Rimba Collective initiative. Each project is slightly different, basically working to address local and regional needs. All the projects are third party and they're independent of the Starry Capital and independent of the Rimba Collective in terms of who manages, develops them, runs them. They're developed and managed usually by local NGOs in partnerships with local communities who have land tenure rights or ownership over the land themselves. And all of the projects basically focus on forest conservation, restoration, biodiversity achievement, climate benefits achievement, and local community livelihoods. Some projects might be more remote, and therefore they might be more focused on forest protection. Others, and, and traditional indigenous livelihoods, for example. Others may be more in forest frontier areas, near production areas. And so that's where sort of alternative livelihoods become key and forest protection and, and, and restoration might also be important. We also have obviously sort of technical criteria, which we are seeking from the projects, but all of the projects that we have deliver these aspects, whether climate benefits, uh, biodiversity, habitat protection, habitat restoration and livelihoods in various quantities in terms of their focus. And that focus is determined by them. Where do these projects have to deliver in terms of additionality? We have these sort of three groups of, of outcomes, the climate benefits, the conservation and, and biodiversities, as well as the livelihoods. As part of doing this work, we developed a framework for what we refer to, as mentioned earlier, the, the ecosystem service outcomes. And so these are the verified outcomes, both conservation and livelihood that the projects achieve. So they are effectively the tangible outcomes that the projects over each year actually deliver. And as I said, we don't treat the projects as grantees. We don't treat them as charitable entities. We treat them as they should be treated, which is an equal partner that actually delivers outcomes that we effectively buy from them and we retire in the name of the RIMBA Collective. So these are not tradable credits. I guess credits could be used in the most well-known word, but they are effectively retired on behalf of the RIMBA Collective and they're not passed further on. Since the claims of the users are dependent on these, the additionality is something that we actually take very seriously. And as part of the third-party certification process of the projects, there are baseline studies conducted under each project to establish exactly what the additionality will be if the outcomes of the projects are achieved, so if the project is successful. And of course, the outcomes themselves are then independently verified to ensure that the additionality has been achieved. And they achieved across that wide range of environmental service outcomes. What then are the benefits for those involved in the funding of the projects? You know, the Rimba Collective was developed by some of the largest private sector actors to address their conservation needs. We built everything from scratch. 
This is from the vehicle design, the contribution models, to the legal agreements, the project criteria, to the monitoring, reporting and verification systems. It is a truly unique and high impact collective of which to be a leader. The companies that are participating, you know, really see themselves as being that leader in the space. The positive way that we have developed this and conceptualized and put it all together showed real desire, I think, for companies to think outside of the box and, and move away from what we have currently into, into something that actually helps them build on high standards for verification, transparency, and of course, accountability that then reaches a system which is robust and that supports the achievement of their targets, their commitments. And their commitments have also a broad range, whether it's related to biodiversity protection, to achievements of science-based targets, to other climate benefit goals, to supporting local communities. This system provides a level playing field in how the companies contribute. It also creates a level playing field in how each company is able to make the claims on the contributions that they make. That's really the biggest benefit to the companies is that they're verifiably able to see what has been achieved as a result of their contribution and really to have that tangible outcome that moves them towards the fulfillment of the commitments that they have set themselves. That's really the key of what participants of the RIMBA Collective are achieving and receiving. And I guess that then enables them to communicate with their own stakeholders, say, look, here's how we're doing what we said we were going to do. Here's we set out these targets and here's the tangible evidence of what we're doing to work towards them. Exactly. And, you know, at the back of all of this, as I said, you know, having spent so much time in the weeds, we do forget the excitement that the individuals working with these companies and then all of us actually have on seeing these projects start and be successful. And I think we need to each take responsibility and, and see how we can support this kind of global movement to effectively avoid a warmer world than the 1.5 degrees. You're looking at half a million hectares for the next 25 years. How scalable is this model beyond that in terms of geography, but also in terms of into other commodities? You know, we really built this with scale in mind. And, and the more companies that join us, the larger the project portfolio will have to grow. We've had a lot of interest from different tiers of the supply chain. And we're now, I'm incredibly pleased to say, at a point where additional actors joining the RIMBA Collective will most likely mean that is that from the outset, from year one, we will have to move towards having a bigger vision around the scale of the project portfolio. More actors coming and joining us will mean that the project portfolio will have to grow over that half million. In fact, it's already planned to be well over half a million hectares, but we want to obviously have vision way beyond that. And so that will be an incredible achievement. And it is possible that in 2022, we, we will get there. The most excitement obviously comes from also looking at other geographies and other commodities. And we see the Rimba Collective as being something that is incredibly scalable and adaptable to other commodities, whether it's cocoa or coffee or rubber or soy. And so this is something that actually this year we're beginning to explore because I think there is so much more opportunity, so much more demand for conservation from the private sector and so many projects that need to move away from the current support models that they have into something which is much more professional and recognises what they actually do to help us move towards conservation at a more global scale. You'll have been going for two years in 2022. What are you hoping in terms of progress for this year? What will success look like for you in a year's time? 
in 2022, in the next few months, we will be starting the first year of funding for the projects that will build out that half a million hectares over the next few years. So that's starting already. So I'm incredibly looking forward to actually just seeing those projects commence their conservation work and, and livelihood activities and starting to see progress there. At the end of this year, we will hopefully have our first verification of the outcomes that have been achieved, and we will already be looking at the expansion into the year two. So we will be well on our way to 200,000 hectares by the end of next year. That expansion, I think, of the Rimba Collective users as well, I think an exploration of other adaptations and obviously that scaling up is something that we want to be thinking about right from the beginning. So that's also for us a vision of what success would look like at the end of 2022 is that we have a very clear plan for that and we have more actors joining us. So, so I guess that's my call to action. We are in many ways at an incredibly opportune time. We are able to really think about how else can we create more incentives for conservation? What other types of projects are we able to support? What can we do? How can we utilize the Rimba Collective to change the narrative around development? If we can demonstrate both to those project operators, but to the communities and to governments, as well as to the private sector, that actually there are alternative pathways towards development, you know, moving towards a conservation model rather than an exploitation model for areas that right now are in danger of becoming part of the exploitation model, then I think that becomes something that is really exciting. Because here we have a long-lasting, tangible, a viable and a robust model that can demonstrate to all of those actors that actually conservation is a viable alternative. And so a big part of our work over this year will also be seeking opportunities to look at other project typologies where new projects could potentially be started, but also where potentially different concession types could be used for conservation rather than other forms of development. And I think that really supports the long-term vision of what we're doing, but also the long-term vision of what many governments are committing to and what actually local communities and companies would like to see. It's a fascinating initiative. Listeners, if you want more information, just go to lasariacapital.com. Loads more information there around how the projects are structured and how the overall Rimba Collective works. But for now, Michael Zust, thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual insights, analysis and podcasts. Proving to be very popular over the past couple of weeks have been insights into the potential of agroforestry in the cocoa sector and our focus on the Wildlife Works Mayan Dombey Red Plus project in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Well worth a listen. And don't forget also to take advantage of the discount available this week for the Future of Food event in May. All you need to know about this and the rest of the Innovation Forum Spring event series is available on the Innovation Forum website. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. And until next week, goodbye.